While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. I missed the zeitgeist. I guess you were missing out. Maybe? I mean, I could follow the arc of the show by listening to people talk about it. I, if I, first, I was missing something really cool, and then I was missing something really exasperating, and then it ended dumbly, and I felt, <laughs> I felt exonerated. I guess so. I think Lost falls into that realm of TV shows that... If it lost you for a split second, you decided that it was terrible and the worst thing. Like Battlestar. That happened to you too. But Once Battlestar so- got really dumb. Like the the thing both those shows have in common is that they heaped mystery upon mystery and gave you the impression that the writers had a grand plan and then when it became obvious that they didn't, it like broke your trust and you didn't want to watch it anymore like once you became aware that they were not telling a story but in fact you know making it up as they went on the fly without any regard as to where they were going then yeah you stop being interested i guess i guess that's that might be a fault of television making though right well especially television of that era like i think lost and battlestar kind of ushered in a bunch of shows that yes, like to yes. use endless mystery building mm-hmm. as their like primary conceit. And I don't know if people got tired of it or, or what, but I think that now people prefer something like Breaking Bad where even if it even if the writers are still kind of making it up as they go, which I think that that writing team was like they still had an arc in mind they still had like a clear beginning and end and they did not deviate a lot from that to tell a bunch of other weird stories where i don't know like i don't even know what happens in lost like maybe jesse fights a smoke monster (laughs) or like walt gets trapped on an island question mark that's all season one stuff andrew come on you gotta go. You gotta get with Paolo. The you gotta get with Desmond and time travel. Let's go. Hurley, Hurley. Yeah, Hurley? he's one of them. Hurley. The numbers. Eight. Hurley. Eight six seven five three zero oh, nine. <laughs> well, we didn't write this open before we started. We were making it up as we go along. Welcome to Overdue, <laughs> a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And we only sort of talk about TV. We don't, it's not the main goal, but it's something we do. Yes. Um, full disclosure <laughs> for this episode, we are both, <laughs> we both uh, had a wedding this weekend and it was very lovely, but we both got in late last night. We apologize that this is posting probably on Tuesday instead of Monday, <laughs> but um. It can't be helped. We still wanted to get you guys a show. And yes. so here we are, just kind of stumbling through it. Yeah, we'll, we'll see what so happens. This, really, this is your fault, is what I'm saying. Oh, the listeners? Yeah. Yeah, it's you, their the fault. Listener. It's their fault. Your fault. Pick a pick an object. <laughs> Sorry. I uh, know. I'm yelling at myself. That's how tired I am. Um, <laughs> because we want to please the audience. Ooh. We don't want to let them down. No, we don't. That's Solid. interesting that you say let them down because that's a really good segue without even really meaning to be. Because this week I read uh, Jeffrey Eugenides' The Marriage Plot, which is about, among other things, uh, manic depression. So okay. It, like like he's uh, there's a guy in it who like, gets down. I thought, you were, I thought your segue was about what, the, whether or not you thought the book was a letdown. <laughs> No, no. I mean, we'll get into that. 
<laughs> okay. But that's not what the segue was. <laughs> okay, so this is our... Is this the only author that we've read more than once? We've read other authors more than once, right? We've done a couple Shakespeare's. We've okay, done, Shakespeare. We okay, did a couple Oscar Wilde's. Oh, yes. Okay, um, never mind. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like we've we've done... I'm trying to remember if there are others. I'm sure there are, but... Well, we read two Dr. Seuss books. I yeah, guess. but we did them at the same time, so I don't yeah. know if it counts. Um, I mentioned... Did I mention this was Jeffrey Eugenides? And um, we read the his previous novel, Middlesex, like a million episodes ago, I think approximately. About a million or so. Yep. Definitely a million a listeners ago. About that. <laughs> um, that episode's like in the teens or the 20s somewhere. I think um, that book was published in 2003 and it was about um, a transgender child growing up and, and coming to terms with his sexuality her and then his sexuality um this was published in 2011 and it's it's a little narrower in scope i think do we want to talk about eugenides at all because yeah mean, we probably should a little bit we didn't i don't we didn't remember really... if we went into a lot of depth Mm-mm. on him the last episode we had not yet hit our stride in terms of author information and, and what like like usual a modern writer tends to have less information out there in the ether about them yeah Um, you have biographical information but you don't have a lot of research or or other things to go off of no i mean eugenides comes out of the late 80s early 90s crew of writers that includes uh well i wish i could i wish i knew female writers more that's a that's a glaring error on my part um, well, good work. Just go ahead with your <laughs> with your misogynist list. And we'll, I, well, the other two we'll I was going to mention are are Fra- Jonathan Franzen and David Foster Wallace, uh, and the you know the three of them are this kind of trio of of writers reacting to guys like uh, Thomas Pynchon and and Don DeLillo, um, and so they were writing during the eighties and nineties when I think tv and and culture was just getting weird and (laughs) not like things probably weren't weird in the 70s but i I feel like there was i don't think they had twin peaks in the 70s they did not (laughs) that's like my one thing from that era that i'll use as an example (laughs) i wonder if the 70s caused twin peaks though like (laughs) we did so many drugs in the 70s that we ended up with twin peaks um but so I think there's there's from what I've been reading about that that group that era of writers there was this kind of almost identity crisis for what a novel was supposed to do and, and what it functioned as in contemporary society as people gravitate towards other forms of entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um so you have stuff like uh Infinite Jest coming out which is a giant huge sprawling book and then you have uh, the corrections, I think, which is Franzen's first, you know, his big breakthrough book, which is a lot smaller in scope, almost as a reaction. And then Eugenides, his books come ten years apart. His first, The Virgin Suicides, was in '93. So if you're a big Eugenides fan, you got you got some waiting to do. <laughs> yeah, right. He's like the George R. R. Martin of coming of age fiction. So. <laughs> So I think the from an interview I read with him uh, kind of characterized his three books as you know the the Virgin Suicides, which I don't know very much about, even though it has been made into a movie. Um, That's the one I've not read, so I'm not really in a position to talk about. But uh, I think so it was a salon interview uh, talked about the Virgin Suicides being about finding a voice, and then the Middlesex being more plot based. And then this, uh, the marriage plot, ironically enough, being more character focused, which is what you were kind of alluding to. With yeah, I'd say that's right. Smaller um, in scope. Yeah, I said Middlesex was 2003. It was actually 2002. Just want to correct myself before I you get a listener correction. I thought it was <laughs> 2003 too, because that's when it won the Pulitzer. Yeah, right? that's okay. what I was thinking about. Um, yeah, so Middlesex, if if you haven't listened to the episode yet, and you should, because I think that's one of our um, better early ones, was um, it was about a lot of things. Like it was about coming of age as a transgender person, but it was also about 
like multiple generations of immigrants like coming to America. It was about like the rise and fall of Detroit as a city. Mm. Um, it was about um, Eugenity's Greek heritage, I guess. Like it, it combined a bunch of different threads into this one big, like sprawling multi-generational story. And that was, I mean, that was part of what I really liked about it. Cause I think, I mean, I was reading a New York times review for the marriage plot and their reviewer did not like Middlesex. They found it too, like too unwieldy and too clumsy. But um, the thing I liked about Middlesex is it told a bunch of little stories and it told them all pretty well. And it moved from story to story briskly enough that you never, like you never found yourself mired down in any, in any part of it. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned this mostly because the marriage plot is a lot smaller. Like instead of being a multi-generational thing with a lot of different focus points, it's about basically three college seniors from Brown, I think. Yep. Who, um, Which is where Eugenides studied. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, who graduate in 1982. And then it, and then it's about them in their first year after college as well. So yeah, there's a lot of, um, I mean, there was a lot of autobiographical stuff in Middlesex and there's some of it here too. Like one of the three characters is Greek. He lives in Detroit, so you know that those are touchstones okay. of Eugenity's work because they're big, you know, big parts of his past. They are at Brown, which is where Eugenity's went. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them thinks about being an English major, and there is actually a really good quote in the book that I think tells you what Eugenity's thinks of Uh-oh. being an English major, even though he was yeah an English major. Uh, he says the English was what people who didn't know what to major in majored in. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> well, so if you are or have majored in English at a liberal arts institution, there you go. I think he also went on record as it, there was a, a burgeoning movement at Brown during his tenure there, where you could either go the like old quote unquote old fogey route of English and just study all the books you should have read by now. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you study, you start studying semiotics, which is like, yes. and that's a whole part of this book, right? Yeah, it's a big component of the of the book early on. What what was your understanding of? I tried to read about semiotics, and I started to get a headache. Um, I know it. I know a brief definition of it, but I would love to know what you gleaned from the book first. Tell me your tell me your definition of it's it. It's the study of signs and sign making. In, and I don't just mean like road signs. I mean like all signs, language, anything that signifies meaning. It's the study of meaning through symbols. How about that? Yeah, I guess that's like the. Okay, so you you hear most of what you hear about semiotics through the eyes of Madeline, who's the the you know there are two men and a woman who serve as the protagonist of this book, and you hear about this through the eyes of. Um, you hear about this through the ears. Let's not mix my <laughs> mix my senses here. You hear Madeline, about it through the is... mouth of Madeline. You see <laughs> it nose. through her nose. She smells the class, and that's how you hear about it. Um, yeah, Madeline's in this class, and she likes all of this like Victorian and kind of romancy literature, and um, that that's what she really wants to study. But she gets to Brown, and she finds that the people who teach this stuff are kind of fusty and uh, and she's she feels out of touch with her peers and so she takes the semiotics class and she like a lot of it does not connect with her and so what i really get got a sense of through her perspective was just that this stuff is kind of confusing and the sentences all bend in on one another and they don't necessarily make sense okay <laughs> at least they didn't make sense to her i guess okay <laughs> well, as so that's I, what I have to tell you about semiotics. As I understand, like the, the book is not a lot about that. Okay. Well, as I understand its application to literature uh, and and media of any like you know store narrative media of any kind, it's about tropes and identifying storytelling tropes, and not just 
studying how they arise in a particular story, but then noting all of the similarities between, say, all love stories ever, so that you can rob those individual occurrences of their meaning as you identify them as, you know, signifiers and and symbols. Yeah, yeah. Which, when I read that definition, it reminded me of... This is going to sound random, but it reminded me of one of the scenes in Watchmen, actually, um, when Dr. Manhattan is kind of talking about his understanding of things at an atomic level and the argument of whether or not you can appreciate something appreciate something's beauty if you over understand it if that makes sense like if you yeah. overthink it and and dissect it and understand it scientifically whether or not that prohibits any sort of kind of emotional response mm-hmm. um, which seems to be like the kickoff of this book is like how this affects her understanding of those classic love stories right yeah, like there's there's one point in the book where she's talking about or she's with her boyfriend Leonard who is another one of the three principal characters. Um and she tells him that she loves him and he grabs this book called A Lover's Discourse by uh, Bart that she's reading. Okay. Um that's spelled B A R T H E S. And there is actually a passage in the book where someone pronounces it in class and she's like, oh, that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> so that's the only reason I know. Um, and and so she says to Leonard, I love you. He picks up this book and turns to the section of it that's about the phrase, I love you. And the... I guess the the words in the book are the figure refers not to the declaration of love to the avowal, but to the repeated utterance of the love cry. Once the first avowal has been made, I love you has no meaning, whatever. And and like, you know, deconstructing the meaning of this phrase that a lot of people give a lot of weight to and they say all the time. And then once you I guess once you've said it enough, you just kind of say it without thinking about it as much. That's a depressing thing to think about. How that how the phrase "I love you" can become like a verbal tick, or yeah, like something you say when you're not sure what to say, or just kind of by default, or you're you're you know? sorry, so you say "I love you," <laughs> or you want someone to do something, so you say like, could "How you... often does that come up for you?" Well, like, well, like I want like, please go get say, me a cookie from the cookies. kitchen. Yeah. yeah, but instead of getting instead of saying "Please get me a cookie." Just say, I love you. I love you. Can I have some cookies? <laughs> this, we call this subtext in the theatrical t- tradition. Oh, uh, really? But I guess it's just meaningless drivel in the semiotic tradition. <laughs> 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 no. So what? what is the the plot of the marriage plot in so much the as, pl- as there is one? What is the marriage plot? hey um, okay, I'm I'm gonna take a step back and just make sure we've established all of our leads. So we have there's Madeline. Don't worry. <laughs> there's Madeline, who I talked about. There's mm-hmm. Leonard, who is Madeline's boyfriend and later husband. And there is Mitchell, who is this third guy who aside from really liking Madeline and not having those feelings reciprocated, is kind of separated from the main action of the of most of the book. Okay. Um, so the gist of the story, I mean, the, you know, plot wise is that Madeline is in the semiotics class. She meets this guy who is like, really, he's kind of enigmatic, but he's really smart. And he, he has a, I guess, a way of talking and interacting with people that a lot of people are really attracted to. And so they start dating and. Then she says, I love you, and he's kind of a jerk about it, <laughs> and they break up for a while, and then just as she's about to graduate, she learns that Leonard has been hospitalized for depression, hmm. and so she goes to the hospital to see him and like forgives him and and starts taking care of him, and they, you know, they... they graduate and they both move away he's got like a biology fellowship somewhere and so she's living with him and trying to you know help nurse him through this depression and he's taking a bunch of lithium and so he's just kind of numb and 
not the guy who she fell in love with, I guess. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, but just as those really heavy antidepressants take away your lows, they also take away his highs. Like he's, he's a manic depressive to be really specific about it. And the books, the book's best material kind of, um, explores this condition in kind of the same way that Middlesex explored, um, you know, being a transgender person and finding out about it and coming to terms with it. Okay. Um, kind of being guess, yeah. being diagnosed as a certain type of person that you can't un like that's not a thing you cure. It's just a thing yeah. you are. It's a chronic thing, and that's a big part of the book. Is that Madeline finds this out and she sticks with him, but as time goes on, it starts to weigh down on her, like. Whenever he's half an hour late home or whenever she goes to bed and he's up watching TV or something, she's never sure, you know, if he's going to have some kind of an episode and he, you know, he feels so deadened by the lithium that he starts messing with his doses Mm. and he has another manic episode, which Madeline really likes for a while because he seems like he's coming back to his old self, but, you know. Of course, you know, they have a really good a really good period of their relationship again, and it's made better by the fact that he's been so dead for so long. But then and he like proposes and they get married and she thinks everything is great. And then on their honeymoon, he has another episode where he he goes kind of nuts. Yeah. Um, like on a on a gambling run with some strangers in Europe and. He he runs away from her and she doesn't know where he is for a couple of days and then he turns up in the hospital and it's just like she feels the weight of this kind of crushing down on her, you know, not not wanting to abandon him because she feels sort of like she is what separating him from from death almost. Yeah. But also feeling like, OK, I am 23 years old and I am married to a manic depressive and that's like the rest of my life. Like I will never not be worried about this. I I don't, I don't think I remembered what age they were supposed to be. (laughs) So like just after that doozy of a plot synopsis as to where we are (laughs) right now, no, which is not, not to fault you for that. It's, it's heavy stuff. And even just hearing about it is like both engrossing and weighing on me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's like, oh yeah, they're twenty three. Good luck. Yeah, have fun with that. Yeah, and that's that's simultaneous. Like in the back half of the book, especially once you get the section that's from Leonard's point of view, I found myself more engaged by that. But in the beginning, before it becomes clear what's wrong with Leonard or what's happening, it 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 feels a lot like every college short fiction submission that I've ever read. Like. Oh you're yeah. a bunch of twenty two year olds and they're all they're all so unlucky in love and what's gonna happen to them and blah, 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 blah. who cares? <laughs> <laughs> how long of how long does it go through the book without actually telling you or telling her what is happening? It's maybe the first third of it, okay. I wanna say. Okay. Because you do a lot of jumping at first, you do a lot of jumping between her plotline and Mitchell's plotline, and frankly, I I found Mitchell's arc wholly uninteresting, and I actually actively disliked Mitchell hmm. through most of the book, like almost through to the end, because he he meets Madeline pretty early on in college, and decides oh i'm gonna i'm gonna marry this girl and he's one of those guys who gets quote-unquote friend zoned and i'm only using that term because i feel like that's the way he feels about it yeah yeah because i think that's a pretty despicable point of view but he he kind of feels like you know one day madeline will realize how great he is like what a nice guy he is and come and marry him and settle down or whatever and he just stakes some kind of weird claim to her early on and is totally obsessed with her through the whole book. And I just found that really distasteful and, and not comfortable. And there yeah. are a couple sections in the book where, where somebody calls out 
Mitchell for being sexist and he's like, well, I'm not sexist. And then he thinks and he's like, oh, well, maybe I am sexist, but it still it still doesn't address that that core aspect of his character where he's kind of no matter what he does, he's kind of thinking about Madeline and pining over her and feeling possessive of her in a way that I. I found unlikable, I guess. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, it leads me to wonder because I'm. I'll play devil's advocate if I need to. Uh, but I, you know, in situations like that, I always wonder with a writer like Eugenides, who does have a pedigree, right? Are yeah. we. Is that the reaction he wanted you to have? Do you get that sense? Or do you think, like, do you think it's a character that you were meant to empathize with and it just didn't click? Do you know the distinction that I'm going, yeah, that I'm trying to make? And. Yes, I definitely do. And I feel like the book never comes out and and chastises him, I guess, for this possessive. Like, it kind of feels like he's laying in wait all through the book. And he has, I mean, his arc is mostly concerned with, you know, after they leave college, he travels through Europe for like a year um, having kind of religious experiences and, and trying to help people and trying to find like what he's going to do with his life. Like he has a professor who tells him, you know, you're, you are, there's only one other student I've had who has been as thoughtful about like religion and these topics as you. And he is now like the chair of religion at some Ivy league university. Hmm. Um, and so he's got to, you know, he's going to take a year off and he's going to decide what he wants to do and if he wants to pursue this career. And he's also trying to, I guess, distance himself from Madeline because he knows Madeline is seeing Leonard or something. Um, <laughs> but there's, yeah, there's never, there's never a moment where he's like, oh, you, you know, he's, he briefly feels bad for like staring at women or, or, you know, thinking about or objectifying them, you know, in, in that subtle way that I think a lot of men do, you know, without really realizing it or without really thinking about, you know, that's something I shouldn't be doing. Oh yeah. It's, it's an unfortunate byproduct of a whole lot of, of like a terrible cocktail of, like hormonal things upbringing and hormones and, yeah. and society and uh, all this stuff <laughs> so he never i mean he never has a moment where he feels like his attraction to madeline is is wrong like but at the end of the book he realizes that you know she's kind of an ideal he's kind of idealized her and she you know he is he is not what she wants and he realizes that he'll get over it. And so he, you know, it's implied that he will move on and be fine. But that's not, I mean, that's not the kind of redemption that, that I guess I was hoping for from him. Like I was hoping his experiences would change him enough that not only would he not feel that way, but he would realize that it was kind of gross for him to feel that way in the first place. Yeah. Did, did it, was it, was it, how, why was it gross? Other than other than just being hung up on her and it's just the possessiveness of it. Like the you know, it doesn't matter that she has repeatedly told me No, this isn't what I want. Yeah. Even though I guess I it's complicated because I feel like three or four years ago I probably would have sympathized with him with, with him a little more. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Because I think that just in general, I think a lot of people roughly our age have started to think about, I guess, feminism and, and like the subtle sexism yes. of things a lot more frequently. At least, at least I'm, you know, I'm going through my own Twitter feed and how I've kind of followed people who make these points and I've, I've, I've learned things from those people. Yeah. That have kind of changed the way I feel about some of these things. But yeah, like three or four years ago, I would have I would have identified with this guy because, you know, I I I had a crush like that in high school. And I feel like a lot of. Oh, yeah, totally. People did. You know, they had a crush on some girl and they thought, you know, 
one day she'll come around and, and she'll realize how great I am and how how happy she'd be with me. But that's like if you go very far down that road, you get to a nasty place. Yeah. So that's my question is where does this we're getting really hung up on Mitchell, but that's fine with me. Um, that's fine because that's this is that's the part of the book I didn't like. That's what drags this book down. For okay, me, is that not only is he narratively not interwoven with the much more interesting stuff about Madeline and Leonard, but I also his first impression on me was not good, and so whenever the book turns to him, I was just I was predisposed to be less engaged by what was going on with him. Yes. So anyway, what was what were you gonna ask? Well, I was gonna wa- I was gonna ask like where it went down that spectrum and, and crossed that line because I I guess is what is at least in this context what is the difference between being possessive and pining? You know what I mean? Where does it where does it, is it just duration? Is it? It ha- yeah it's part of it is duration like it it goes on for like their entire college career and then some yeah okay um he doesn't i mean he never like he doesn't do like is there any like is there an incident is there there's even one incident where they are like he's staying with her and her parents like over christmas or something just as a friend yeah and he's staying in a separate bedroom and she like comes up and she's just got like a shirt and underwear on and like she comes over and and they talk for a while and she leaves and he doesn't make a move even though it's made clear like later on that she would have been open to like sexual relations (laughs) (laughs) okay so like and again i don't i don't want to put anything in Eugenity's mouth okay or like in his hands i guess <laughs> about i don't know about her like leading him on or being a tease or something because i feel like that gets it into uncomfortable potentially sexist territory too, yes right? of course yeah because of course she's like welcome to whatever physical feelings that she wants to have and if she just wanted to to have like a one night stand that time because he was handling her parents well and she was feeling well disposed toward him then that's that's fine and she's allowed to do that and she's allowed to change her mind later and everybody involved should just respect what everybody wants but oh yeah that's that's some thorny territory though right yeah right i mean do you is I know I agree with you. Why I no, feel I so complicated about this I dude. I totally agree with you. Like I, even as I've been kind of advocating for you to be as specific as possible about why you feel icky about it, like I don't disagree with the reasons why it would lead you to feel that way. You know, he doesn't go max icky, and again, I do feel like <laughs> <laughs> just okay. Yep, max icky. That's the thing. Hey, have you met my roommate, Max Icky? <laughs> oh, he's the worst. He never cleans up. <laughs> oh, my God. Max Icky's hair is all over the sink. Ugh. <laughs> um, like, he doesn't He doesn't do anything that's really... Heinous, right? Like, obviously reprehensible. Like, there is no... There's no rape or anything. Like, he does... When she says no, he does ultimately respect that. But there's insofar an old, but there's a qualifier. Insofar as he, yeah, like he doesn't. When she says no, he doesn't do anything in that moment. But that doesn't mean that he stops thinking. Okay, well, I I just gotta buy my time, and she'll come around. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, my feelings on him are just are just complicated. I I, I agree with you though about about uh, love stories in general, and have. The potential for them to feel weird in the, in the future, given like the public rhetoric that's right, I think rightfully and and certainly just like a valuable discussion has started taking place over the past couple of weeks in light mm-hmm. of current events. Yeah, that I think is useful and whether or not I mean, people do you want to be more specific about those current events just for context <laughs> yes the given like the fact that sometimes these things don't get listened to 
on time, right? Um, the kind of surge of attention, the MRA, the men's rights movement, yeah. and yeah. Uh, stuff got after um, uh, the shootings that happened, the uh, Elliot yeah. Rogers, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, just the attention that that uh, received, and, and there were a couple interesting articles that got written that kind of put that in context of a an entertainment industry and storytelling and things like that that I think are, I don't know, they're fascinating and, and potentially troublesome for for certain types of stories moving forward if if you buy those arguments. You know, I don't want to spend a lot of time diving into that because that's not this book. But I, I do, I find myself thinking about stories of relationships slightly differently since and and what yeah. you know when people are going after a thing the the argument of whether or not or a person and that that should tell you right there the transitive sentence that exists in that statement right <laughs> um wherein a person becomes a goal like whether or not that's right whether or not you know what is that and when is that problematic problematic because of gender when isn't it it's it's messy yeah and i mean i I know that sexism is on Eugenity's mind because it comes up. Okay, that's often fair. Often in in this book, but even then, it's it's kind of it's more overt. Yes, okay. sexism. Like obviously, we the reader are supposed to find that stuff outdated and huh, and like bad. <laughs> in that, I was searching for a word and I came up with bad. So there you go. <laughs> Your vocabulary is improving as you read more eugenities, I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, okay, there's a, there's a section where Mitchell is in India and he's talking to some other American who's abroad and and this guy Mike had been in um let me find what's the country? Thailand. Thailand? And he, yeah, and he Thailand? Had been in Thailand and he, yeah, Thailand, Thailand? I don't Spider-Man <laughs> Thailand. I don't know. Maybe you're right. Who knows? Maybe we're both right. Let's just say that. Um, so this guy Mike runs into this prostitute. Basically, she's 17. Okay. And he hangs out with her and is like nice to her for a while, and then she says she wants to marry him. And I apologize in advance for there's going to be a swear in this passage but Uh-oh. i'm reading i'm quoting the book so i'm going to excuse myself okay um he's talking about how she wanted to marry him and come back to the united states with him and he says i actually thought about it for a minute i'm not kidding you you tell me i could get a girl like that back in the states who would cook and clean for me and who's a piece of ass no way man those days are over american women are all looking after themselves now they're basically all men so yeah i thought about it and, like oh, clearly we're supposed to, clearly we're supposed to feel gross about this dude. <laughs> yeah, there's a big red flag. We're we're talking about symbols and semiotics. That's a sign that he's an ass. Yeah. <laughs> Again, to use a word from the text. Excuse, yeah, I couldn't I couldn't bottle that one. <laughs> you could. I tried to stop it midway through. It's uh, fine. No, I th- I think we've we've earned ourselves a couple. Oh man. <laughs> Um, so yeah, like obviously Eugenides is attuned to, I don't even know what wave of feminism we would have been at in 1982, like somewhere maybe in between the second and third waves. Is this a thing? Yeah. Oh, oh boy. (laughs) Read a book. (laughs) Oh no. Um, can you delineate the the waves for me? The first wave was, was was occupied mostly with basic stuff like okay women need to be able to vote women need to be able to yeah okay what, not, like that. 19th century stuff yeah great and okay. then second wave gets into stuff like you know women in the workplace and and um you know fair wages i think gets in there somewhere too like that's where that starts to crop up and then i think we're in the third wave now and is that more and sexual and liberation? You, and and that's when you start getting into slipperier 
concepts, things like the male gaze and like rape culture and that kind of stuff that, that I don't know, more people I think don't see it as obviously bad. Well, because at this point you're, you're, you're right to use the word slippery. That's a great word for it because it's harder to define. And that's that's usually why those things are so more prevalent and more problematic because they're so fluent or fluid perhaps. Um, Yeah. Well, thank you for educating me because I didn't, I didn't have that calendar of waves. In, in yeah, mind. I mean, and I, and I might not be exactly right on all those things, but I think I think that's the broad outline of what's going on. So, this book, I guess, appropriate for its time period, is on board with second wave stuff, but it's maybe not as attuned to third wave stuff. All right, fair enough. As it could be, and that's I mean, that's interesting because if I had read this in 2011 when it came out, I probably would have sympathized more with Mitchell because I didn't have as deep an understanding of those sort of issues. And I don't want to say that my own personal growth and reactions to this stuff has mirrored like societies as a whole, but I feel like my, it's the only benchmark we have, Anders, (laughs) (laughs) my becoming more attuned with it has coincided with bigger and more public discussions. Are you saying that basically like, a rising tide raises all ships. Like if you're there or maybe it's like when you learn a new word and then you start to see that word everywhere, like that might be all that it is. (laughs) You know, you know what I mean? Someone tells you that there's a bear walking around town that you've never seen before. And all of a sudden you can't not see that bear. Maybe. That's an idiom that I've never gotten quite right. Cause I just said it. Is that an idiom? Oh man, someone write in and tell me what the heck I'm talking about. I have never heard of this bear idiom. There's something about it. It's something. Oh God! <laughs> okay. Can we get back to the other plot line of this marriage plot? We're we're running short on time. I want to make sure we have time to uh, do our general listener acknowledgments and stuff. So I want to hear a little sure. bit more about the other two thirds of this book. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm sorry to blow so much time on Mitchell. But no, yeah, I that's did, I did find that stuff problematic. So. I think sometimes a, a for a for a book that's already kind of narrow in scope, I think to dive in we we rarely dive into so narrow a, a section of a of a book. So I'm happy mm-hmm. to do that. Our listeners better be happy. Yeah, <laughs> you better be. <laughs> you better be. So I think the the most interesting thing about the Madeline Len- Leonard arc, mm-hmm. um, and I'll I'll say you know I'll I'll say that their plotline closes with. Leonard basically running away, like jumping on the grenade that is his manic depression and giving Madeline her freedom back. Okay. Um, you know, she she does she is conflicted about it and upset about it. Like when you get scenes from her point of view later in the book, it's obvious that she's preoccupied with like having to basically be worried about Leonard all the time. Mm. And so the book the book ends um, around three months after he just pulls up and leaves and the, you know, you, the reader is left to believe she's going to get an annulment and then, and move on with her life and like go to grad school and move to New York and do the things she was planning on doing. But, um, you know, just, just without him. And um, so the most interesting part of Leonard's arc, I think is just the descriptions of, how his manic depression sneaks up on him and how the symptoms manifest. Mm. Because I think as with sections in Middlesex, Eugenides does a really good job of making you feel like just really getting inside Leonard's head Well, and he's, in a way that makes you feel like you have it, you know, like well, you're experiencing what he experienced. And I wonder if it also helps that he is a well-educated character who has the means to kind of describe it to himself in that kind of close third or first person perspective. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Where it's not just like he has emotions that he doesn't understand. Like he, he's able to process some of that information. I don't know. I imagine that that helps kind of draw the reader in. 
Yeah, there there is a section about how he's talking about how people who are smart have a harder time because they're more self-aware of what's going on and yet they're still kind of powerless to stop it. Like he talks about group therapy sessions where he's basically lying to the group therapist to like make her like him or like he's really aware of the reactions people have to him and what he should be saying to get the reactions that he thinks that he's supposed to get. Yeah, it's like if you, like like there when God. he he starts taking less lithium at some point in his um in his storyline and so he's like preoccupied he has weekly sessions with a psychiatrist and he's preoccupied with making it seem like he's still taking the recommended dose so like faking the the dulled senses Oh my and god! Stuff that he should be experiencing if he was taking the right amount of medication. Yeah, like it gets really deep. That's some intense self-conning. Yeah, and he's you know he's as he's growing up, he's talking about. I mean his his manic depression is just known as the disease through this part of the book. Okay. Like early on, in retrospect, he realizes that he has it, and he feels like. Early on, it just made him like more sensitive, and he had he just he was capable of deeper feeling than other people. And um, and then like later on, he says um, his last two years in high school, when the disease hadn't yet grown fangs and was more of a blessing than a curse, was um, was this period of time where he was getting really good grades and just digesting all this information really quickly, and he didn't need a lot of sleep. Hmm. And then he and then he gets to college and he's like academically really popular and he's just so he's so up that people are just intrinsically drawn to him and he has these these crazy ideas like, oh, let's go to a casino on a road trip. Oh, let's I want a bunch of money. I'll put you guys all up in a hotel for the weekend. Like, oh, my God, things that really draw people to him. But then eventually he starts to feel like it's burning him up and he like can't sleep and he can't put thoughts together and his mind is just racing, racing, racing until he crashes. Huh. And you just follow, you follow him through two or three of these distinct cycles through the course of the story. And the, and the way that Eugenides writes about it is just really, I've, I've heard it said and I don't have a source for this, that um Leonard is kind of a stand-in for David Foster Wallace. I've yeah, I don't know how much we want to talk about that because again, I don't know if that was just you know, I was talking to somebody who had read this book over the weekend and she said that. So I don't I don't know if that's just something that she thought or if that's something that is part of the wider criticism about this book. He got know, asked but. that a lot when it came out, obviously, because as we were talking before, they, they were in the same, the same kind of academic class of people, even though I think they were not as close or in as regular contact as uh, Wallace and Franzen were, or perhaps Eugenides and Franzen were. Um, you know, there's a quote with an NPR interview where... Uh, he didn't know Wallace well at all until like he spent a week with him in Italy and you couldn't really base it on him because he didn't know he was on medications and that he was suffering so much. Um, and that the, the stuff, like the kind of the semiotics, the symbols <laughs> that have kind of pointed people towards Wallace are like the bandana, which uh, Eugenides, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, says comes from guns and roses and the tobacco was just like a thing that lots of people were doing in in college in the early 80s um i mean those properties do seem the confluence deliberate. of deliberate yeah um but sure let's give him the benefit of the doubt i guess yeah i don't know i think he's he's also you know he spends 10 years on these books and if he is kind of if he's not being oddly untruthful about his own relationship with Wallace then it seems like he was probably building this character based on a number of different people that he knew that might have had these problems that yeah yeah and then you know one or two traits you can be you can pick up a couple of traits 
to give a character some color and some depth from a you know from a specific person without that character then becoming a straight stand-in for that person. Yes, and I think the tempting the temptation everyone had when this book came out to really link it to Wallace's overall the the setting and other aspects of what the what the book is concerned about because mm-hmm. Eugenides is, is a writer who see, is very well read and very aware of other writers and I think when the aspects of this book that do have to do with that type of scholarship and the relationship between your perception of romance and and literary romance right um yeah. i think it's tempting to lump all of those vaguely autobiographical elements into you know give them all equal significance and yeah. say well if well, you, this is part of his life or is based on part of his life well then this other thing is definitely based on part of his life yeah right and and eugenides does drop a ton of references like um, Mitchell recites the Jesus prayer from Franny and Zoe and talks about <laughs> how it's from Franny and Zoe. Okay. Um, he just name checks a lot of other authors throughout the book because, you know, the first part of it is at a liberal arts college. And so it is concerned with, with books and with writing. Do you think? And, um, and there are elements of it that even remind me of like love in the time of cholera. When you talk about young love and and sex and stuff like it's it's very gabriel garcia marquez of him well sometimes yeah and i think he was also kind of deliberately playing with some of the tropes of older romantic novels too i think he in interviews kind of said that he set out to write a book based on that conceit like yeah and then i think that's where the book the book gets its title the marriage plot is it's a reference to that older kind of literature where every book kind of ended in a wedding <laughs> yeah and those were the people's goals going back to that idea right yeah um and um let me, i can i can make the last point you're gonna have and then i'll close us with the end of the book and then we can okay we can play ourselves off <laughs> um well and just the idea that i there's a really good quote from this uh from this npr interview um, that he said that, you know, he had the idea of a woman who was becoming skeptical of romance and at the same time was falling in love. And he had the idea of having her fall in love with someone dealing with uh, manic depression because it would require a, a diff, it would create a difficulty of love greater than most. Um, because you can have the same, you know, strength of love or, or passionate love from those hundreds of year old stories but you've got this very modern issue and this very dense and complicated relationship that those stories don't deal with. Yeah. Um, which I think is interesting. And and it yeah. certainly justifies why you write this type of story now. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know. So to to bring the book to a close, he sort of adds this book to that like he connects it to that canon pretty explicitly, like the the marriage plot. Okay. Canon. So I'm just I'll just read the entire last page or so of the book here. Um this is Mitchell talking to Madeline and it's after Leonard has left and it's after uh Mitchell and Madeline have had a sort of awkward sexual encounter where Mitchell afterwards realizes that she is not falling for him so much as she is just getting over Leonard. Okay. If that makes sense. Yep. Um, and so he he asks he wants to ask her a question, and he says, "From the books you read for your thesis and for your article, the Austin and the James and everything, was there any novel where the heroine gets married to the wrong guy and then realizes it, and then the other suitor shows up, some guy who's always been in love with her, and then they get together, but finally the second suitor realizes that the last thing the woman needs is to get married again, that she's got more important things to do with her life, and so finally the guy doesn't propose at all, even though he still loves her. Is there any book that ends like that?" No, Madeline said. I don't think there's one like that. But do you think it, that would be good as an ending? He looked at Madeline. She wasn't so special, maybe. She was his ideal, but an early conception of it, and he would get over it in time. Mitchell gave her a slightly goofy smile. He was feeling a lot better about himself, as if he might do some good in the world. Madeline sat down on a packing box. Her face looked more drawn than usual, and older. She narrowed her eyes, as if trying to bring him into focus. A moving van rolled down the street, shaking the house, the arthritic Great Dane next door bellowing hoarsely after it. 
and Madeline kept squinting as though Mitchell was already far away until finally, smiling gratefully, she answered yes. So. Well played, Monsieur Eugenides. The ending of my book is a, a good ending. addition to the marriage plot, Ken. <laughs> Do you think were you... Don't take my word for oh it. Oh my... It's just take these people's word for it. <laughs> Did you find that satisf- satisfying as an ending, or or rather cheeky? Because you gave the cheeky performance just now. It was a little cheeky. Okay. I'll, I'll I'll allow it. <laughs> I'll allow it. Oh my god. Okay. It puts a, it puts a nice cap on everything, I guess. Okay. So that was the marriage plot. Yeah. Um, if you want to send us a cheeky note, I guess I don't know. Sure. Um, you can email us at overduepod at gmail.com, and you can also send us messages on Facebook and Twitter at facebook.com slash overduepod or twitter.com slash overduepod. Uh, yeah, we got two emails in recently, um, not necessarily like questions or, or things like that, but uh, got some book recommendations from Angie and Amber, which we greatly appreciate. Um, we definitely love when, when new listeners let us know that they're uh chiming in and tuning in rather is what I was looking for. And then please do <laughs> chime in. Um and we're Andrew and I are kind of building up our, our back catalog right now and I think it's actually going to be really helpful for us over the summer. So we greatly yes. appreciate all you guys yeah, sending got in a, got a big Google Doc recommendations. Um Um and we also like messages that are just people telling us that they like the show. I mean we've got we've got a few tweets from people in the last couple of weeks. I mean, it's been two weeks since the last time we recorded, so we haven't we haven't been able to thank all of you in a while. But um, uh, like Cassie B on Twitter says that our episode on Jekyll and Hyde inspired her to teach the novella in her freshman lit class. It's so sweet. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And we've gotten a couple from people who are just like burning through the back catalog, which is what it's there for. So <laughs> yeah, it's it's nice. Uh, we got a, That's really flattering. We got a, a correction. I I don't know when when were we talking about Paul Bunyan and steam shovels. Oh, it was. It was a couple episodes ago. I remember the conversation because we couldn't remember. <laughs> oh, because well, I was talking about Mike Mulligan and his steam shovel on the children's book episode. Yeah, we didn't. I don't think we actually thought it was Paul Bunyan, but we couldn't. The name Paul Bunyan was dropped, and we couldn't. We couldn't name the actual name. Okay. So. Well, so Terry, who has written in uh, to tell us that uh, Nebraska is not as bad as we made it sound. <laughs> Uh, prove it, man! Oh, he, I think he's he's planning on it. I think last What's, I heard. Where's your data? <laughs> he he wrote in to tell us uh, that Paul Paul Bunyan cut down trees and John Henry hammered through rock. That's who it is, um, John Henry. But he was that's all that's all he gave us, and then some <laughs> Wikipedia homework. Um, and then Laura sent us a whole list of children's books that we should read for next year. Um, and there were shout-outs given to Miss Rumphius, which is something I've never heard of. Okay. Um, and Ferdinand the Bull, which I definitely recall. Nice. Um, okay. So. Um, we also have, if you're interested in the books that we're going to read or the books we have read or our back episodes or any of that stuff, that is all up on OverduePodcast.com. Um, we've got Amazon links to those books that we put up every week. So when you, if you want to catch up with us or if we talk about a book and then you really want to read it, you can click those links, buy the book, and we get a little bit of money to defray hosting costs and other things. Um, and we've also got links to our RSS and iTunes feeds that you can use to subscribe to the show. If you do subscribe in iTunes, we definitely would like if you would rate and or review us. Rating takes very little time and reviewing does not take that much more. Um, so far, we've got 18 ratings, um, which is amazing. And we've got a couple fresh reviews since the last time we recorded uh Kay Rubenstein had a very nice one CL or CL C Linnet I guess go for it <laughs> and Lee reading while walking be careful Lee <laughs> that sounds dangerous <laughs> who who said that we were by far her favorite podcast oh my god you can, which... you have to stop walking while you're reading because <laughs> if you're that great of a listener we can't afford to lose you <laughs> She's reading and listening to our podcast while walking. Oh, so oh man, she's just a like multitasker. Find a cha- Lee. Just find a chair. 
I can't even like pat my head. Wait, here I go. <laughs> pat my head, roll my belly at the you, same time. You and I went for like a jog this weekend, and we were like having trouble talking and running. Like, how is she reading while she's walking? I think that has more to do with how bad I am at running than it does with <laughs> with multitasking. Uh, but uh, so, Craig, um, hit me with what you think you're going to read next week. I think I am reading the very first Agatha Christie novel that I need to call up the name of right now because I forgot it. And it is The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, Dan's older <laughs> brother. Uh, I don't not know if he's probably about. not true. Uh, so yeah, um, the, it's a very first Agatha Christie novel, um, and I think that'll be fun. I've I've seen one of her plays on stage, um, and I like good mystery. And uh, Agatha Christie was recommended to us by Cindy on Twitter, so thank you, Cindy. Woo! All right, everybody, uh, that will do us for this week. Uh, We'll see you next Monday. We'll try to be on time. And until then, try to be happy. (laughs) 